I'm going to read the whole book of Titus, starting in verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true son, in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you may put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, saying, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and as commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything they are to be well pleasing not argumentative not pilfering but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people training us to be uh, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great Savior, or great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawfulness 
and to, put, uh, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of the works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once, then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to send Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. This is the word of the Lord. Well, Jason, we thank you for finishing out this series. We are so grateful for your heart that is tuned to the word. Please preach the word to us this morning. Good morning. It's good to have this opportunity. I I like doing it. I know you've heard this nine times in the last nine weeks, but it's an honor and a privilege to be part of it. It really is. Um, so thank you. You know, it's uh, it's tough and an act to follow. Reed Ferguson last week. If you guys are catching this on YouTube, I recommend that you stop this video, look up his video from last week, and watch that. And if you still have time, then you can reconsider today's. So we're, we're finishing the book of Titus, and I'm glad that we read the whole book like we did. Um, I could be wrong, but when Titus has a ministry of going uh, from town to town, um, I, I, see, I see it similar to what you guys are seeing today, that... Um, He's going from, from town to town in an island of Crete, about the size of the Finger Lakes region of upstate New York. And here's Paul's message um, to Titus and to, the, and to the church. And then, you know, here's a new guy that, that's going to be, uh, you know, uh, acting on that message. 
So um, I'm glad that we were able to hear it in its entirety today. So we've been studying this for nine weeks. Today we're going to be focusing on the last four verses. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be to you all. So our first verse is verse 12. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me in the accomplice. I've decided to spend the winter there. And our first point is, the business of grace is personal, but it's not proprietary. Here, Titus is given quite a task. A young man uh, left on an island to, well, only put what remains in order and appoint elders in every town. Uh, that's not a small task. And yet here we see that he expects to be replaced. When I send Artemis or Tychicus, I don't know which one, you don't know, you don't need to know, but when one of them shows up, you're in personally invested in the island of Crete, you're also going to have to walk away from it. You're going to hand them the keys to your ministry, and you're going to, and you're going to join me at Nicopolis, mainland Greece. And you're going to do this in winter. We know that Paul's a busy guy. He's a moving target. And so he gives his address. He gives a place and a time. I'm going to be at Nicopolis. I'm going to be there over the winter. And that's only helpful advice if he's talking about the next winter. Uh, we know that Paul wasn't a snowbird. This was, this was his plans that he was hoping for this year. So I always had this idea that Titus was stuck on Crete and that and church tradition says that he came back to Crete and invested his adult life at Crete. But that's church tradition. That's not scripture. And in any case, Titus wouldn't have known that when he's reading this letter at this moment in his life. So I think that's important. Now, we know lots of folks that talk about their personal mission field or their personal ministry. We know... Um, Lots of missionaries that talk about how they were led to their mission field. Um, sometimes it's really neat stories, uh, almost seemingly serendipitous providence. You know, how they were looking and working through closed doors, and then suddenly something opened up, and they were right for it, it was right for them, and they saw God make that happen. And sometimes we hear people's stories about how they've always known, I wanted to serve God in this place, in that place, or in this particular ministry. I've, I've just always known, I've always had a heart for, for this or that. When I was going to Cedarville, I remember RJ. He was probably the kindest, most hospitable man I, I, I met. And he had a laser focus for the people of Bhutan. He had, for as long as he could remember, he wanted to serve the people of Bhutan. He, he knew about their, their, their culture, their history, and he had, a, he had a true burden for them. He was a um, mechanical engineering major, but that was just a tool to be used for, in Bhutan. He just had a laser focus. You know, our pastors I, all have stories as far as coming to their church. Um, Dave Theobald, Matt Gibson, they'll tell you how the Lord led them to their church. And we, too, um, 
have, we, we too can say how God has led us. And we too have you know, our story, our church, our church family, our ministries. In this church, we have our ministries. We have, whether it's in the kitchen, or it's the crafts, or it's the kids club, or kids block. What, kids block? You know, so we all have our personal uh, ministries here. And if you've been watching the, uh, the, that slideshow, you see all those faces and you see how, how the church, how the body of Christ is made of these wonderful individuals. And it's, just, it's actually kind of neat listening to, to all you guys when the, when the face changes and it's a new person and you're like, ah, oh, it's, it's, it's him, it's her, you know. And, um, and that, that's, that's, that's wonderful. But we struggle sometimes. I know if I were Titus and I had this charge, I know this would, would not be a throwaway line. You know? I would know that in a few months I'm going to be handing over uh, my responsibilities to one of these guys, Artemis or Tychicus. When I was thinking of this, I'm, I'm reminded how quickly we go from a personal sense of belonging to something to a sense of proprietary ownership over it. And you know what I mean by proprietary. I'm not trying to just come up with obtuse big words, but proprietary. It's like you, 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 uh, you shake the spice on your steak, you like it, so you look what the ingredients are. And it's salt, it's garlic, okay, and spices. Not helpful, but it's their proprietary blend. You have, you know, Pepsi or Coke, and you look at the ingredients, and it's sugar, sugar, water, water, natural flavor, natural flavor, and then maybe a bunch of ascorbic acid and a bunch of chemical gobbledygook. But it doesn't help you. Um, it's, their private, it's their private reserve. It's their private, propri, private property. Um, it's, it's just a proprietary property, a Pepsi-Cola company, or the Coca-Cola company. And many times, we too uh, can get that sense. We, sometimes we get this, you know, when things change, you know. Um, we've always done it a certain way, or we'd like to see it done a certain way, and we see things change. But, my goodness, this church has changed so much since it was a Bible study at, at uh, Budden and Norma Maltby's. How, how much the Lord has guided us through these changes. If any of us has a right, I've been here for 40 years, or you know, I'm, I'm looking for a church, so this is a big decision, I have a, I have a right to, to make sure things are so-so. I mean, if any of us have a right to our personal ministry, Titus had a right to, to say he had a personal calling to Crete. He had a, a literal book of the Bible as his letter of recommendation, as his letter of commission. And it's written by the Apostle Paul. And it's written to Titus, my true child in the faith. Paul, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, and Titus, an unproselytized um, a Gentile, a Greek, now both in the family of Christ and, and Paul saying to Titus, you are my true child of the common faith. And this is why I left you in Crete. I mean, you can't beat that. And, and I'm not saying like the book of the Bible is a recommendation. I'm not just saying that in jest. 
the canon of Scripture was settled in, in the apostolic generation. So in Titus' lifetime, people saw this not just as a good word from the Apostle Paul, but they saw this as valid and, author, and authoritative word from the Holy Spirit of God. And yet we have here, when, before winter, I'd like you to step away and I'd like you to entrust uh, Lord's work to Artemis or Tychicus. For us, I would make the point that, not just in the particular point, this was a particular point in Titus' life, but the, the essence of the Christian living is personal, but we know it's not proprietary. We know it's personal. And that's only unimpressive if we forget the scope between ourselves and God. When we forget just how great our God is, the one who created the galaxies, the one who is morally perfect, the one who cannot look on sin. And yet each one of us can say, Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know my lying down. You know my rising up. Right? You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path. Right? You know my lying down. You're well acquainted with my ways. Before a word's on my tongue, Behold, O oh Lord, you know it all together. That's personal. Every child of God can say, I lift my eyes up to the hills. Where does my help come from? It comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. That's personal. And each one of us, the children of God, can say, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And yet the skeleton in the closet of many churches and many Christian homes is that we want a lot. Is that we feel a little ball of anxiety when we try to uh, um, defend Romans 8.28, all things work together for good. That many times we're dissatisfied, disappointed, and discouraged. True. When I was thinking on how... When I was preparing for today, the verse that kept coming to mind is Galatians 2.20. To sum up the, that the Christian living, Christian life, the Christian essence is personal, if not proprietary. I am crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. A verse that starts with the word I and ends with the word me is personal enough, even for my ego. And I'm a physician. I have a substantial ego. But if we, uh, if, if we think, of it, think it through, I have been crucified. Crucifixion, you all know. Whether you're a member of the church or a visitor, whether you consider yourself a devout Christian or not, you know, I think, what crucifixion is. We have the symbol of the cross right there. Crucifixion is a way you die. It's a way you kill people. It's a way criminals die. It's the way that the state kills criminals. It's the way the Roman Empire said that in a brutal, inhuman way, that no matter what evil you think you can come up with and devise in your heart, the state will match that and raise you crucifixion. We could nail up a proclamation of what our law is. 
Or we could nail up a proclamation of this person is a breaker of the law, wanted dead or alive, but we'll just nail you up and make you a message that you are a lawbreaker. And this is what happens to lawbreakers. If I say I have been crucified, I'm saying I'm dead and dying. And I'm dead and dying a sinner's death. I am dying because I deserve to die. I really haven't lost anything because I was dead. I was dead in my sins. I was separate from God and from the things of God. And the life I live in the flesh without Christ is just my body running to, racing to catch up with my soul. Were I to die without Christ and go to the pearly gates and, and golden streets, to the big fishing pond in the sky, I w- would be dead. I would be insensate. I, I would not be able to enjoy any of those things. I am separate from those things. But I have been crucified with Christ. Now that, that's the amazing part. That doesn't make sense. That Christ is there. Christ with me. It's not unusual that I would want to be identified as a Christian or be identified as with Christ because Christ was a good man with a good heart. He was a great teacher. He was the Son of God. But why would Christ, very God of very God, be with me. So to paraphrase John Stott in his, in his book, Why I Am a Christian, I am not a Christian because I grew up in a Christian nation. I'm not a Christian because I grew up in a Christian family. I'm not a Christian because I asked Jesus into my heart when I was a preschooler, because I wanted to make the truth that was symbolized by a VBS craft to be true for me. Or on Mother's Day, 1995, to, to with tears, go through Scripture and say, I'm going to live with my, in my heart and my mind that this is true. I'm going to trust in this. I'm not a Christian because I'm still at church and I haven't walked away. I'm a Christian because Jesus Christ, the hound of heaven, leapt off the, that comfortable hearth in heaven and sought me out and went to where I was, even though I was directly in the path of God's judgment, even though I was dead in sins. I'm a Christian because Jesus, who C.S. Lewis calls the great chess player, moved the pieces of my life so that I could see his goodness and receive him. I am a Christian because the Good Shepherd was not content with spiritual haves and have-nots, but he sought me out, though I was a have-not. And he went to where I was, into the mud, into the thorns, into the valley of the shadow of death, with me. I'm crucified with Christ. The God who searched me and knows me for who I am loved me and gave himself for me. The creator of, the, of heaven and earth, my helper when I was helpless. The Lord, the, Jesus Christ, the perfect image of the unseen God, would call himself my shepherd. It's personal. For Titus, I think that, I think Titus could see that the Lord was providing for his own work. And I think we can see that if God would supply Christ 
to be our Savior, that He will supply all other things that we need, that Titus didn't have to worry about leaving Crete when he burned out or fizzled out or was drummed out, but that God was supplying his own needs for his own work. And I think that in the particular case of Titus, he could know that he wasn't being called to idleness. When he was being called to be step away from a ministry, he was being called to the next thing. It's a human pride to feel pessimistic about being replaceable, but God is, like we said, the great chess player. He places and moves and moves again all, all the pieces on his board. So for us, applications. If our Christian living is personal but not proprietary, if in fact we have been bought at a price and we are not our own, if in fact, as Titus says, that Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works, how should we apply this? First, I would, I would take Paul's example, Titus 1.1. 1, 1. A servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. I'd say the whiff test, you know that first when you crack that jar and you see if you can trust that lunch meat or trust that yogurt, um, the whiff test is, can you say, I am a servant of God and I do this in Jesus' name? So many of our quarrels and fighting come because we just bury that. We set that aside. And secondly, why does he do it for? For the sake of the faith of God's elect and for obedience and for knowledge that accords with godliness. The second test, I would say, would be to look for the as-for-you statements he gives to Titus. If Paul is a servant and Titus is an extension of Paul's ministry, then what are these as-for-you things? Well, he says in, ver- in chapter 2, verse 1, teach what accords with sound doctrine. So, the second one is easy. It's easier said than done. Is it biblical? When we, there are quarrels and fights, when we feel something stealing our peace, is it biblical? Not that we found seven words that we can, in a row that agree with us, but does it fit the coherent canon of Scripture? And then verse 7, be a model of good works. Is this quarrel, is this fighting detracting from that? Are we putting things on hold until we get this thing squared away or we win this argument? Finally, I would say as far as recalling that, um, the, that the business of grace is personal and proprietary, remember the qualifications of an elder. A steward is not to be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard, violent. And I would say violent as not just, not just uh, as far as fisticuffs, but um, in the use of God's word. That yes, we're supposed to re- uh, rebuke and rebuke sharply error, but not to hurt, not to wound, except to, except to set things right. But not to win arguments. Verse 13. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. My second point is that the beneficiaries of grace, the recipients of grace, the beneficiaries of grace 
are particular, but they're not always predictable. If I, you know, Titus, reading this, do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. I think it's really important. I don't think it's just a throwaway line or a, oh, by the way. I think that at least the Holy Spirit had, had a purpose for this. Again, if I were Titus, if I were young, new to the ministry, and had a huge task, the geography of the Finger Lakes area and the spiritual depth of nursing an infant church, I would have a very forest-level view. I would, I, and, and if I were saying, like, guys, here's the, word, here's the book of Titus. I was in Hornell last week. I'm here today. I'm going to Geneseo next week. I'm not sure how I'm going to work out the Rochester area um, yet, but, and I've got to do this by winter. Um, I would, it would be very easy to kind of just lose sight in little ways of, of, in, of the tree-level view of individuals. But here Paul and the Holy Spirit says, look out for Zenos and Apollos. And I think we would know that if a dad told his kids, clean out the garage, and by the way, if you find the, the Black & Decker drill bits, I've got two cases of drill bits I'm looking for, and if you find them, I need them. Then we're not just going to be stuffing things in boxes and just throwing things on shelves. We're going to be looking at everything in a little more individual uh, view. And also, if I were Titus, I'd need help. Uh, I'd need help. I'd be bouncing around the island of Crete. I would be busy getting to know folks, um, setting up the, uh, discipleships, um, getting to know and, um, elders, potential elders. I would need the collaboration of the Church of Crete in all these different towns. And I suggest that maybe a good test to see if Titus had stopped by was if there were Christians um, at the ports saying, have two guys stopped by? You know, has, has a guy by the name of Zenos come by? Has, um, so I see that Titus leaving this in his wake of a church that's been given lots of good general instructions, but also a very specific task. Like, here's, here's some low-hanging fruit to uh, get the ball rolling. When these guys come by, don't drop the ball. Roll out the red carpet for them. I think that uh, we need to remember that it's not predictable that when we talk about things not being predictable I, I want these guys to not just be two names here Zenus is pretty much just a name if we're honest he's just like a, a level 10 Bible trivia question you know you're about to win the Bible trivia board game and then it's like who is Zenus and you're like oh my goodness um, so close um, and to us, um, you know, 2,000 years later, let's be honest, our, many times we read Titus and we're like, I'm sure he was a good man doing important work, but that was then. You know, he did his thing, and, and why, why is this here? Well, um, maybe that's important. Uh, other than this, other than Paul's recommendation, who was Zenos? Well, we do know one thing. He was a lawyer. 
that's actually, there's one detail that Paul wanted Titus to know that uh, the Holy Spirit wants us to know, that Zenos was a lawyer. And I don't want to make too big, about, big a deal out of that. But I think that is important. When he says a lawyer, he probably wasn't talking civil law. He was probably talking Old Testament law, like uh, Jewish Old Testament law. He was like a scribe. He was an expert in the law, like who engaged Jesus so often. And I think that's important because Paul talks about avoiding getting lost in the weeds with um, so-called knowledge, uh, pseudo-knowledge, uh, you know, of things that sound really spiritual and are very technically detailed but are unfruitful. For a letter as short as Titus, and I know reading the whole book was a little bit longer than our usual um, scripture reading when we prepare for a specific sermon. But it's actually, when you're talking about a vision for a regional church, it's a pretty short uh, message. And yet, he is redundant about avoiding fruitless um, technobabble uh, for, uh, you know, it, that, that sounds religious, but isn't. I think that's important. If Paul, if Paul takes the time to say that twice in a short epistle like this, it's important. And yet here he's saying, this is one of the good guys. I'm not telling you to be anti-intellectual. I'm not telling you to be anti-elitist. But here's, here's Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos. Actually, I'm really curious where these guys are going. You know, um, Here we have an Old Testament... Uh, um, we have an Old Testament uh, lawyer, scholar, and we have Apollos, who we know was also no intellectual lightweight. Um, so where are they going? Where are they engaging? Were they going to be doing a circuit around Crete? Were they going east, west, north, south? We don't know. Um, now, I do want us to look at... Um, a, Acts 18, because I'll read it. You don't have to turn there, but that tells us a little bit about Apollos. Acts 18, verse 24 says, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he only knew the baptism of John. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, and he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Christ, that the Christ was Jesus. So, I just think that he, he's not a shoo-in that he would be Paul's ally here. He was a Jew named Apollos, native of Alexandria. Alexandria was in Egypt. It was kind of the UC Berkeley of the day. Um, so you had, and he, his name was Apollos. So it says he was a devout Jew. And um, actually, I believe, well... But his name was Apollos. That's not particularly orthodox. Um, that's after the Greek god Apollo. So, I don't know. You have a man from a liberal city. with It would be like a Christian from Portland who named Thor. Um, 
So you're like, okay, well, that tells me a little bit about his parents, if not, um, if not him. And he was an eloquent man. He was a fervent man. He was a bold man. But he, was, he only knew the baptism of John. And so we see the providence of God, that Apollos dodged a very real danger, the, the very real danger of being a gifted, smart man who's almost right. I, I, do, I, think that's, um, I think that's important. I think people know how dangerous it is, how fraught with temptation it is to, be, to have a brother and sister tell you, after you've been to church for years, after you've studied, to say, you keep saying that word. I don't know if it means what you think it means. You, um, you know what your natural response would be. And again, how often does that cause these quarrels and fights among us? And yet, and, and again, with Priscilla and Aquila, um, you know, these um, followers of Paul who explained to him, and yet he took that, and he grew from that. That's just by God's grace. And then we look at a second danger. 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says, It's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you is saying, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? You see, Apollos dodged another danger by the grace of God the danger of being an admired man. He had an audience if he wanted to be Paul's rival, if he felt it was justifiable. I don't, I don't really want this to be the direction of my ministry, but I've, I've got these people who want me to be clear, want me to, you know, um, it's, we know today how easy it is to be caught up in these factions. What's your opinion of this person, that person? And yet we see here that he is a dear ally of Paul. I want to point that out. I want to point out that it's not really as predictable as we think that we're here. If you look to your right and look to your left, there are some folks that you would say, 10 years ago, however long ago, I wouldn't have predicted that they would be a dear brother or sister in Christ. Or for the folks that you look around and you say, I can't picture them being anywhere but this church. I can't see them anywhere but being a dear child of God. If you knew their biography, each one of us has something that would make us say, oh, right? First Peter 2 says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. Romans 5 says, We were weak, and while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, perhaps a good person, some would dare to die. But God shows his love for us, and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And I think you guys know Ephesians 2. You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience, 
among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love by which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. By grace you have been saved, through faith. And that's not your own doing. It's a gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Or as Paul says in Titus chapter 3, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Sounds like Facebook. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You know, another point as far as the unpredictable recipients or beneficiaries of grace is also how Paul structures when he talks to the the church of Crete. From a patriarchal, and I say this with a little hesitation, but from a patriarchal society as Crete, you could almost accuse Paul of being woke we would have thought that he would have said, here's the important instructions for elders, and then older men and younger men, and likewise, older women and younger women. But that's not quite what he does. He does talk about the elders first. We depend on the elders to know, um, to know the truth of God. We rely on them to take special responsibility to know the truth of God. In a sense, they are the body's eyes and ears. And if uh, you recall how when, when Christ talked to the Pharisees, you blind guides, you blind Pharisees, you blind fools. Jesus said, if the eyes are dark, how dark is that darkness? The eyes are the light of the body. So if the eyes can't see straight... How great is that darkness? It's the thing you depend on. So yes, elders are important. We cannot simply be lone rangers and, um, and, and disregard that. But then he says in uh, chapter 2, 1, but for you, so it's elders, then hey, you, Titus. Then he talks to older men. And then uh, by, he's going by maturity here, by Christ-likeness, also the older women the mature. And then he gives quite a good length of time to the ladies. He gives them 
And then he goes straight to at the older ladies or to teach the younger ladies. He gives them the treatment that a first century Cretan would probably think would be due to the men. And, but, and then he says, and likewise tell the, tell the young men to be self-controlled. That's not trampling on the young men, um, but it is brief. And it's not simply demeaning to say, um, you know, stay out of trouble. But, to, but as, as a young man, be controlled. You have much gifts and faculties. Use them, control them, bridle them, and, and be productive with them. And then, he talks about, and, and then he talks about the slaves. Well, he talks about you again. He's back to you, Titus. Be a model of good works. And then finally to slaves. Slaves be submissive to their own masters and everything. Now it's surprising that they would show up at all. But slaves are to be submissive to their masters and everything. They're to be well-pleasing and not argumentative. Not pilfering, but showing all good faith. So that in everything they may adorn the gospel of God our Savior. Slaves are told to do two things. To not be argumentative and to not pilfer. And I think that's important. Slaves were the bottom. However, whatever injustices we face, it was not chattel slavery. So he is saying that because of, the, of what Christ has done for us, you do not have to argue about being right at every opportunity if life has wronged you. That's, a, that's something that our society in particular, that if life has wronged you, then um, if in general then you can fight over every specific. And not cheating. Though it's a strong, not pilfering or cheating, or stealing, it's, it's a strong temptation to want to cheat a little bit when life has cheated you in general. As a slave, the whole world order had wronged you and cheated you. But he says, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all people and training us wherever we are, whatever we're doing, even if we are like slaves facing something that's not technically illegal but wrong. It teaches us to renounce our ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. So, a reminder, folks, as far as that the beneficiaries of grace are particular but not predictable. Paul gave Titus a few particulars. He gave them Zenos and, and Apollos. He says, look out for those guys. What's our low-hanging fruit? What are our particulars? What, under, what underhand throws has God given us? I submit to you, let, let's not make it complicated. We have a missionary board. We have missionaries. We have ministries. We just heard about the PRC. We know specifics. I wanted to steal the sign-up sheet and just see how, and just how encouraged I was on a full sign-up sheet for the uh, Balloon Festival. And I, and I appreciate that very much. So we know our particulars, I think. So let's be faithful to that. That brings us to, to verse 14. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Paul's telling Titus, yes, as a pastor, telling another pastor, let our people 
we cannot, obviously, you know this, we cannot let our productivity of this church be put on the shoulders of our elders and deacons. The elders glory in how in the sheep. Their glory is our productivity. Their desire is that we learn to devote ourselves to good works. We cannot be looking to Matt and Dave as far as being the the face and the heart and the hands and the feet of Grace Baptist Church. They are to let their people um, learn to devote themselves to good works. And to devote ourselves, let our people learn to devote themselves. Learn. So if you're not good at it, great, perfect. That's, this verse is for you. This is for us to learn to devote ourselves. And to remember that we are devoting ourselves to good works. We are the devotions. We are the, we are the gift. We're the, we are the devotion. We're devoting ourselves. We talk about, have you done your devotions? We talk about, are you carving out a few minutes to read God's Word or to, to meditate or to pray? But that's such a backwards way to, to think of devotions. That we, again, our time that we're going to give a few minutes uh, for the reading of Scripture or to just linger and speak to God in prayer or to meditate on God's Word. And then it's back to whatever else we, that's on our schedule, the next thing on the, on the, on the list. We, so backwards. We are the devotion. We give ourselves to good works. I want to emphasize this by Paul's instructions to Timothy, in 1 Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct, in love, faith, and purity. Till I come, devote yourself to public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have. It was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. For by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And again, to emphasize that our that when we talk about have you done your devotions, like have you read for a few minutes? Consider how that squares with Joshua chapter 1. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do, not to read for a few minutes. Be careful to do according to all the law that Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left. That's a 24-7 thing. That you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. You will meditate on it day and night so that you will be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous. Then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Did I stutter? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. We don't know what the urgent needs are. We are not prescient. 
the, so the, so the last point is this. The benefactors of grace are to be proactive. I had to do P's. Dave, because we're, we're all waiting for you to come back, I had to use the letter P. The beneficiaries of grace are proactive to be prepared or productive here. You can use either. We don't know the urgent needs. We don't want to be caught flat-footed. Consider March 2020 when the pandemic came down and clamped down on us after months of little rumblings and will they, won't they, and what's up, what's up with that, and, and uh, have you, what, you know, do you know what's going on? And then all of a sudden in March 2020, ready or not, shutdowns, COVID. We don't, that's one sense on a, on a national level. And then suddenly there are all these urgent needs that are uncovered, all these anxieties and fears and, and, and things that we, I, I, I laugh with Doris, we, I, in 2019, um, I was talking her ear off about a one-year plan, a five-year plan, that sort of thing, and then 2020 happened. Had, so we don't know what the urgent needs are. And again, we're not talking about just the big things, the national things. We're talking about the individuals. We don't know who's going to show up and set, suddenly say, um, I need whatever that need is. Um, we have, so we don't know what we don't know. And we, and it's to be, let our people learn to devote themselves. Let's learn to devote ourselves to good works so we're not unfruitful. I have unfruitful times, Definitely. Each one of you, I suspect, has dry periods, unfruitful times. If too many of us have unfruitful times, that's a famine. That's a drought. Now, we are dependent on the grace of God and the supply of God. But we are told here by God how to prevent that. Learn to devote yourselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. I wish I could tell you that you're going to be fruitful, that God's going to do great many wonderful things, that all things are going to work together for your fruitfulness. But that isn't necessarily true. Some of us may not be fruitful. Some of us may not be fruitful. Some of us, the message would be, sin is lying at our door, a sin of bitter fruit, a sin of thorny fruit. Of, of bearing thorns, not, not good fruit. That glorifies God. So let's, there is not a guarantee of fruitfulness. Let's learn to devote ourselves to good works, trusting in God so that we might be fruitful. Titus 2. We do everything so that we may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. We adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And he was saying this about the lowest of the low, the slaves. John Calvin says, This ought to be a very sharp spur of exhortation to us when we learn that our becoming conduct adorns the doctrine of God, which at the same time is a mirror of his glory. And indeed, we see that this usually happens as on the other hand, our wicked life brings disgrace upon it. For men commonly judge of us, of our works. He, he also says, and I want to, 
I wanted to jump to this. Everything that they can seize on as improper in our conduct is maliciously turned against Christ and his doctrine. The consequence is that, though it's our fault, the sacred name of God is exposed to insult. Accordingly, the more we perceive that we are keenly observed by enemies, let us be the more attentive to guard against their calumnities, and thus let their malignity strengthen in us the desire of doing well. We should also observe this, that God deems to receive an ornament from slaves whose condition was so low and mean that they were wont to be scarcely to be counted as men. He does not mean servants, which we have in the present day, and he was saying this in the 1500s, but slaves bought with money, held like property, like oxen or horses. And if the life of those men are an ornament to the Christian name, much more let those of us who are in honor take care that we do not stain it by our baseness. Our great God and Savior Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. He might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she may be holy and without blemish. Revelation 19, Then I heard what seemed to be a voice of a great multitude, a roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Closing thought. You already know that the kingdom of heaven is like a pearl of great value, that when a merchant saw it, he traded everything he had to have the pearl. If you're like me, you think of that as a moment of salvation, that you left a life of sin and you seized that pearl and accepted Christ into your heart and a new heart and a new life, and you were saved. And you wouldn't be wrong. But the kingdom of heaven is the grace of God appearing to all men, to all people, to you and the grace that you need and receive today and tomorrow. And for those who do not yet know Christ, to know him and have fellowship with God for forever. So, We adorn the gospel of Christ. We are those pearls that, that, that Christ gave everything to have to see on his bride when presented to her in glory. Verse 15, if nothing else, let me just end with this. Grace be with you all. Grace greater than all our sin. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace 
freely bestowed on all who believe. You who are longing to see his face, will you this moment his grace receive? So, grace be to you all. Thank you guys for your attention.